of John, so it's good to see you this morning. wasn't here last Sunday because I was quite ill, um, and I began to wonder, as 2023 began, whether I was being given a message uh, with various things happening. But here I am today, by God's strength, pray that uh, you will hear God speak and not me. And to that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have already enjoyed this morning. We thank you now for the moment that has come to look at your word. We pray that as we do so, that you will help us. Help us to take it uh, to heart and from yourself. And even if there are tough things to take on board, help us to do so with grace. If there are great things to rejoice in, then help us to rejoice as well. But we do pray that we might respond to what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as John announced uh, the subject at the beginning of our service, it hadn't occurred to me just how maybe pertinent the theme might be in its title, An Escape Strategy. Um, being as a, this is the first sermon I'm delivering as a new elder. But I have a feeling, if my memory serves me right, that uh, I was booked to preach before I was elected to be an elder. So there we go. Okay. Um, I do have my bag ready and packed here, so, you know, you never know. What I want to look at today is um, a portion of scripture, or two portions. We'll save, save the second one for our time of communion, because I think it's more pertinent to think about it then. But to begin with, I want us to think about temptation and our responses to it and how we approach it and what we feel about it and to this end we've got our reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and right at the end of that which was read to us we have verse 13 which uh, speaks to us of um, our day-to-day experiences I suppose a life that we live in a fallen state with sin besetting us and bubbling up within us Um, And we we need to respond, I think, at the beginning of this new year to what God is saying and help us to prepare for what lies ahead. In the context, Paul is talking about idolatry. He's had some tough things to say to the church in Corinth. um, And some of the stern warnings that he's laid out for um, the people who would be reading this letter when it was first delivered Some of these warnings in sternness of what they uh, contain and how they relate to their lives could have left some of the members of the church quaking, very fearful and very inadequate or feeling inadequate in how they might be approaching their Christian life. He's had to deal with licentiousness. He's drawn on Israel's history as an example to them all, but the strong rebuke that he brings through for some, and maybe for some of us here this morning, might be a little bit too much to bear. And so he concludes this little section with these words of, I suppose, encouragement to help us to become stronger. Um, And it's probably one of the most, one of the most beloved verses in scripture. And in writing this verse and its context to the church in Corinth, he writes to us. And so we need to take heed of what he has to say. And with God's Spirit's help, we'll do 
just that. Now, by way of introduction, I've got a picture for you of the cutest animal you might ever see. Does anybody know what it is? It's a turtle. That much I do know. It doesn't look much like one. It's more draconic than turtle-like. But it's a, um, I've got it written down here, if I can remember, the alligator snapping turtle is what it is. And it spends most of its existence with its mouth wide open. And it does that, and I can't really show you in the, uh, in the black and white drawing that I've got of it, there are other pictures, and some of them are, uh, are they look like tiny little terrapins to this size. Okay, so, you know, the little tiny terrapin doesn't look fearsome, but if you were to be faced with one of those, that shell is this long, I think you'd have a different opinion of it. And what it does, it sits at the bottom of the ocean, sort of buried half in the, in the sand and stuff that's there, with its mouth wide open, and on the end of its tongue, it has a purple extension that it wiggles. It's a bit like an anglerfish, I suppose. Because a swimming fish going by will just take a look at it and think, mmm, tasty. We'll drop down to try and feed it, and then the jaws clamp shut, and you know it, uh, they've got like a beak, and they'll grab the fish. And it's one of the most largest turtles. It can raise up to, grow up to about two and a half thousand pounds in weight. It's huge. But it starts off like a little tiny terrapin that you could keep in a bowl of water and grows to enormous, catastrophic size. It will even eat, if it can, get hold of one, an alligator. It is huge. That little worm is the enticement for the fish. And that serves as an illustration for us as what temptation can be like. It looks nice. Even if we are understanding of what might lie behind that purple worm, it's only a little tiny thing, isn't it? It's not ferocious, it's not big, but it grows and grows and grows. And it can very, very easily dominate. And temptation can act like that in our uh, lives. If we were only to see the nastiness of what lay behind the juicy worm, then I think you and I would be very wary of taking a bite of the worm. But we don't, do we? We look at the thing, the, 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 the juicy part, and forget that maybe inside of that is a barbed hook. And then when we bite, for fun, for satisfaction, for whatever reason, and get hooked, well, it's a little bit too late then, isn't it? Temptation comes along in our lives, and it comes along in the life of the church, comes along in Corinthian days, um, and it, it, the verse that we've got helps us to sort of grapple with our relationship with that purple worm and the creature that lies behind it. And to understand it, I think we've had some great songs chosen. We have some uh, a reading of the creed and the, the catechism, which are all really, really useful. And quite a lot of what I'm about to say, you've already heard. Um, but it, it serves the purpose of repetition, and by repetition, we, we begin to learn things. To understand the nastiness 
of what's going on with that snapping turtle and its representation as an illustrative uh, creature for our lives, we need to think about what sin and temptation really are. And we've had it in, answered for us in the catechism. I just want to go over a few things just to help drum it in for us. There used to be, I think, in the British Science Museum, a length of uh, metal, I think it's made of metal, um, which is a yard long. Um, and it was the official measurement of what a yard is. So if you wanted to know how long something was, it was so many yards long, you could go to the British Museum, as you can see this bit of metal, and you could say to yourself, well, I know it's that long, so I can take that as my standard. The thing is that metal expands and contracts, depending on how hot or cold it is. So the measurement of a yard, <coughs> depending on the weather, is different if you go back and back and back and back to the museum. But the point I'm trying to make is that there is somewhere something that you can go to define for yourself the standard. Something that isn't in yourself, something outside of yourself. So you could trot along to the museum, you could look it up, and then you could actually take a piece of paper, draw along it, and then take that away with you. And for the moment, that's the accurate representation of a yard, and you can do all your measurements. But more than that, Although we might define sin as sort of meeting the standard, make, making sure that we're right, it also has a straight edge. And you actually can't draw a line straight without following a straight edge. We all know that. Um, but it's not, not enough just to put a ruler down on a piece of paper, put your pencil next to it, and push the ruler along. Which is what we often do when we're trying to draw things. We're given tools. We're living our life with all of the things that we have been provided for, but we don't know how to put them into practice. We don't know how to use them. We don't know what they're for. And so we need to address that. Sin is defined as a falling away or a, dry, a digression, falling short or going away from uh, an established thing, a target that you have to hit, a, a, a route you have to take. By deviating or digressing from that, falling short, like an arrow short, falls short of the target, that's sin. Moving away from the edge, that's sin. The thing that we have to do, struggle with in our own lives, and it becomes more and more prevalent, I think, as the years roll by, not in terms of how old you become, but how generations turn and become different generations, is that we begin to lose the sense of what that yardstick is where it is, where do we go for it, what's it for, does it even exist, can I have my own yardstick, can I have my own French curve to use to draw a line, no, we need something that is an absolute, a standard that is not relative, that is clearly lit and that is easy to see if you go to it. Now, the easiest thing to see about how to live your life in terms of understanding from the Bible is to go to the Old Testament. And there you get a list of 10 very, very simple things that are laid out for you to adhere to. Quite straightforward. It's not a long list, and it's quite easy to, to keep to. You know, we, we've been told to have no other gods. We've been told to not make any idols for ourselves, or carved images. You're not to take the Lord's name in vain. You're not to take the Lord's day in vain. You're, you're to honour your parents. You're to 
keep from murdering each other, from committing adultery with each other, for stealing from each other, for lying to each other, and for wanting what everybody else has got. Now, it's a simple list, so hard to keep. Some of them are really simple. I mean, I don't know that, I don't know all of you, but I'm pretty sure that not many of us here have committed murder. Not many of us have made a craven image or got a piece of wood and made an idol out of it. But we still struggle with this list. How many of us have thought about stealing? How many of us have looked at somebody else's things and thought, hmm, I want that. In fact, no, I want better than that. Sin is very, very attractive, which is why this simple list is so difficult to keep to. The purple worm on the end of the uh, snapping turtle's tongue could represent to us a number of things, a source of joy or satisfaction or acceptance or need be, needs being met. Now our prisons are full of people who have defied the law of the land. And I've got some mind-boggling statistics for you, which I won't show you, I'll just read a few out. Do you know that as of September 21, there were just short of two, pe two million people in this country in jail for violence. Just short of three million people in jail for theft. Just over five million in jail for fraud. Just under two million people in jail for computer misuse. There's about a quarter of a, a thousand, a hundred thousand, sorry, let me say that again, a quarter of a million for theft, for vehicle offences, for using um, dangerous weapons. There's about 50,000 people, all in jail because of what they have done that is the breaking of the law of the land. But sin is more than just doing things. In Matthew 5, we come to the realisation that sin is a matter of heart. Looking at another person with lust in your heart is the same as committing adultery with them. Desiring your new neighbour's car or your neighbour's new car is covetousness, which we are told is idolatry. It's wanting something more than God. Just calling someone a despicable idiot is tantamount to murdering them. That list's really hard, isn't it, when you begin to dig into it? But it gets worse because we not only break that law, we change it to make it feel that we are not breaking it. By changing our straight edge into a French curve, which is used to draw curves, we think we're doing all right. Oh, and by the way, I've got my guide to keep me straight, and you can have yours as well. And it might be different from mine, but that's okay. As long as you're not hurting anybody, please, can someone define to me what they mean when they say, as long as you're not hurting anybody? Is it physical hurt you're talking about? Mental hurt? Emotional hurt? Spiritual hurt? Things that are obvious, things that are hidden, things that are long-term, things that are immediate? What do you mean by hurt? In 2018, the Office of National Statistics did a survey, came up with some figures about 
men and women who had committed suicide in England and Wales. The second most populous county for ladies to take their own lives is Yorkshire and the West Humber. We are in a society immediately around about us where hurt causes people to respond with the most extreme action of self-eradication. That was women. For men, it is just less than Wales, but third on the list for Yorkshire and the West Humber. Brothers, sisters, don't think that by having your own standards that you are not sinning and you are not hurting anybody else. It is so, so subtle. We change the source of defining what is right and wrong and we cannot, if we do that, we cannot go on imagining that it has no effect on anybody else. If we look to anything else other than God's revelation for a source of authority, judging success or failure, if we look to our peers or how we feel or what we think is right, we will fall short, we will miss, we will digress, we will sin. Truth is found outside of ourselves, something higher than ourselves. It is found in keeping the commands, the standards set by a loving, heavenly Father. Keep the rule of God by your side and it will guide your path. Now our verse says that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. But the verse prior to our text says that anyone who thinks they stand fast take heed lest they fall. One of the biggest self-delusions that we have is thinking that we are stronger than we really are, spiritually and emotionally. Now I'm going to quote two people and I'm, I was amazed that these people said these things. Carl Sagan, a science fiction author of old, founder of a, a, a global movement, said, it is far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion, however satisfying and reassuring. There's a man who didn't know God, and yet he was able to say that it's far better to face the truth than to live the lie. And Friedrich Nietzsche said, people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. I might be here this morning destroying some of your illusions. And I make no apologies for that. It's God's word. I do apologize for the hurt that that might cause you. And if it does, come and talk to me. But I do believe at the beginning of this year, we need to realize once that we are not invincible. We are not 
invincible. The fact is that sin wages a war outside of us and within us. Our hearts, says the Bible, are desperately wicked. It's what comes out of us that defiles us, not what goes in. And it's the enemy that prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may destroy or consume. That is the reality of the situation, but we live in a self-saturated society. I was looking through some um, adverts um, recently. L'Oreal, famous phrase, you're worth it. There was a, a bus adver advertisement in the New York City a few years back that said this, volunteer, it's ego-friendly. Way, way back in 1911, Kellogg's ran an ad that said, a little picture of a girl holding, clutching a, a box of cereal, said, you'd be selfish too. And more recently, the NHS ran birth control adverts asking men if they were really willing to give up their gaming for babies. Or would women be willing to sacrifice fashion and makeup for babies and the adverts assumption was both groups would say no it's all about me it's all about how I react it's all about how strong I am and how I can cope we assume that we are the center of the universe the hub of existence and that makes us the most important the most strong but you're not as strong as you think. Now, we may look at others and say, oh, I'm gonna, I would never do what they did. Or how could she do that? She's supposed to be a believer. Or you know how he always turns to the bottle? Or I don't know why she puts up with him. I'd divorce him in an instant. And so on. Ogmandindo said, Failure will never overtake me if my determination to succeed is strong enough. If I only have enough willpower in my life, then I need not bother with the verse like this. We might say, I am determined to keep myself pure. I will never fall into sin. Sin is subtle and it has its desire set on us to control us, to dominate us, to destroy us. The first murderer in, in, the, in the Bible was confronted by God. And God said to him, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not will, do not do well. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. I find that that verse really, really challenging for a church. Because the context of that condemnation is jealousy over worship. His sacrifice was accepted, mine was not. I can't cope with that. Don't think that sin isn't real. There are hundreds and hundreds of references 
to it in the Bible. Another point that we can extract from this verse is that another warning, God knows us, he's got our number. And the Bible peppers us with really uncomfortable things. Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John, which we read a bit earlier. If we say no sin, we deceive ourselves and make God to be a liar. There is none righteous. No, not one. The fact is that outside of Christ, we are sinners and we are prone to sin. Even Paul said something like this. The good things that I want to do, I don't. But the evil things I don't want to do, well, it's those I keep doing. Woe is me. Even Isaiah said he was a man of unclean lips in a perverse generation. Now, I believe that God looks upon us with so much love, he is willing to overlook our transgressions, knowing that he has sent his spirit to remind us of Christ and make us more like him. He was perfect. He was acceptable to God and he was without sin. And God wants us to be transformed into his likeness. But here and now, this side of eternity, we struggle. We stumble. We act like we're not grown up yet. And God loves us all the same. He doesn't love us for what we might become but for who he will make us to be. He doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin and become unjust by letting our sins slip by undealt with, but he sees the future he has for us, fully clean, fully restored, holy and acceptable in his eyes. But in the meantime, here and now, there are trials and temptations that we go through and just like his son. But unlike him, the tests seem to take us to our breaking point. But in all of it, he knows where our fault lines are, where our missing understanding is, where the sunspots of our love are. And it's that that he responds to. See, we may be overcome by temptation, but it's not unique and that's our next point two warnings but an encouragement too you're not unique now i've got a picture of a, a blacksmith at work with his team building a chain it's a big chain don't know what it's for but i certainly wouldn't want that to be dragged around my neck a charles spurgeon used an illustration of this type of thing to help us to understand what it is how we respond and what sin is like in our lives he talked of a man a king who wanted a chain built and he called the blacksmith to him and as it was the blacksmith's job to build the chain he said go away and build the best one you can now after a wee while of hard labor he came back presented the chain and the master said no 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 it's not big or strong enough i want you to do it again 
So he went away, laboured hard, got his team around him, came back, and this went on a few times. And finally, the chain was acceptable to the master. And then the master had the blacksmith bound by the chain he had made. And Spurgeon said something like this. It's what serving the enemy is like. It's what serving sin is like. It encourages you to build bigger, better, stronger snares for you to fall into. But be encouraged. No temptation has seized you except the common stuff. Everybody else. God surrounds us with a hedge and he says, I am not going to let the uncommon get to you. Nothing passes this defense I have built except what everybody struggles with. All the other believers. It may be a sin that's taken up young lady in the past. There'd be another brother here maybe who is suffering with the same troubles and awful agonies and burdens that you're struggling with. Nothing is unique, brothers and sisters, but it is effective. We're left with no excuses, really. God filters out the too hard to bear. So we can't say, but I just couldn't deal with it. There's no resorting to our situation saying, but I couldn't help myself. There's no pointing the finger and saying, but you don't know what it's like for me. True. It's effective, but it's not unique. But perversely, perhaps, there's comfort in knowing this. There's comfort in knowing that God knows our strengths and weaknesses so much that he won't let us be taken beyond that point of being able to bear. Now, for one of us, Having a slice of cake is okay, but having a second slice of cake is too much. And others might look at them and go, well, I'm sorry, but you're weak. Can't you put up with it? But do we disdain a person who can't resist that? Do we belittle them? Do we call them raka, fool? Do we slay them, cancel them? because what they have done because they're weak and we're strong we've just fallen into sin what about judging a man who looks for comfort outside of his marriage but all the while unknown to you he's the subject of continued offensive domestic abuse it happens what about bringing an incompetent person down and saying you need to go because you've done stuff that either I don't believe in or I, by my definition, think is wrong. Are we stronger? Are we better? 
See, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Knowing that he understands us, our weaknesses, our propensity to sin, our natural fallen nature, and our fundamental dependence upon him gives us comfort because he can be trusted. There's no love for him if we can define our own standards and do just fine by ourselves, thank you very much. So when you're taken by sin and it feels like you're the only one struggling, you're not. And here's where our verse turns and goes full on comfort. You have a faithful God. He is faithful that while you are struggling, when you may be tempted to give up the fight, when your hands go up in despair and say, I can't carry on. When the billows of the world are flooding in and they're dragging you down, God remains faithful. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Brothers and sisters, God is at work in you. He's in work in that person who's struggling with some sin or other. He's in that work in that person who's got a, a real big head up over arrogance. 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. Philippians 2 again. God works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Therefore, run the race, be encouraged. Is the Christian life too much? Are the responsibilities too great? Is the growth of the church too small? Are you growing weak in your walk? You have a faithful God. Because God provides an, a way out. He has an exit strategy for you. That while you're in the midst of your sins and temptations, God creates, the words that are being used here is he makes an escape. Relevant to your circumstance, pertinent to your issues, perfectly matching your weaknesses. He makes an escape. I've got a picture of a man who you may or may not know. I hope it comes up. This is a man called Scott O'Grady. Anybody heard of him? No, none of our military folk know who he is. He was a pilot, shot down over Bosnia, crashed behind enemy lines. And he spent, I don't know how long, hiding, keeping his foot away from the enemy, making sure he wasn't discovered and found. Then, one day, a helicopter found him. And he did his utmost, fighting through bushes and woods and trees to get to the airport the helicopter, because it was his rescue. 
wasn't the enemy. When you and I are overcome, lost behind enemy lines, downed by some temptation that seems to have overcome us, God sends the helicopter. We have to discern it. We have to hide from the enemy. We have to squirrel ourselves away in the undergrowth. We have to make sure that they don't see us, Satan doesn't see us, but God can find us. It is an escape, not one of many options. It's the same one always that is given. It's not a dashing hero God that charges in at the last minute to rescue. It is Christ himself who has been given to all believers. I'm going to finish with another illustration. I don't know how true this story is, but it's humorous and it serves a point. A man in the church had come to the altar at the front and was on his knees by his pastor praying. And he prayed at the same prayer that his pastor had heard many times before. He said, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. And before he could go any further, the pastor said, Lord, kill the spider. We long put up with the source of temptation in our lives and fight the symptoms. We need to kill the spider. We need to get rid of the one thing that is the source of our problems. For you, that's one thing. For me, it's another. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to leave it for you to discern. But when temptation overcomes you, remember it's nothing new, but it's especially effective. It causes you to turn to God's remedy, to escape the pain and suffering and damage you might otherwise cause to yourself and others and praise God in place. That's the exit strategy. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the musicians to come back up to the front, and then we'll have a time of communion. Father, we just thank you for your word to us this morning. pray that it will be a source of great encouragement to us as we wrestle in our lives with all sorts of things. So thankful that you provide an escape route, a way out for us. Thank you for the gift of Christ. Thank you for the enabling of Christ, for his spirit. Thank you that there will be a day when we will stand fully justified, fully reconciled, fully at peace with you. But until that day happens, Father, I pray, help us, help us all not to be condemning each other but to build each other up to stir one another up to love and good works and at the end of the day we'll be stronger but Christ you will be honoured and glorified we pray to this end Amen well we'll uh, come to our time of communion where we'll be thinking about the second aspect and that is comfort in confession 
We'll have a song as we get things ready, and then we'll take communion together.